a listener production. This is Crappy to Happy and I'm your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher and author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this show, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring and intelligent people who are experts in their field and who have something of value to share that will help you feel less crappy and more happy. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Woodhouse, who is a research psychologist originally from the UK, but now living right here in Australia. Sarah specializes in trauma and she's passionate about helping people to better understand what trauma is and it might not be what you think it is and encouraging us to be less afraid of looking at and acknowledging all of the things in our lives that might have caused a trauma response in us. She teaches us how to recognize when we get stuck in trauma loops so that we can break free from those old unhelpful patterns that we often fall into. And look, pretty much every one of us has had experiences during our lifetime that have created emotional injuries. And I know that what Sarah has to share will help you to better understand yourself or someone else close to you. And that can only be a good thing. Here is my chat with Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crappy to Happy podcast. So lovely to have you here. I'm super happy to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Sarah, I was really intrigued when I uh, saw your book come out and we will talk more about that. It's called You're Not Broken. And this is a book that is about trauma. And I think that what's happening at the moment is we're having a lot more conversations around trauma, which is really exciting to me um, and really broadening our definition and our understanding of what trauma is, which is why I'm so thrilled to see your book and your contribution to that conversation. So can we start with what is trauma? Yeah, absolutely. It's the great, it's the right place to start, isn't it? Um, the definition I find most people sort of resonate with and, and can can find their way with is that trauma is a reaction to any experience, and that's really important. It's any experience that makes us feel overwhelmed, threatened, and out of control. And and it and it's an important definition because of that any experience. So of course, you know, when when we say trauma, we, we think of those big severe events, don't we? You know, yep. bushfires, floods, assaults, whatever it might be. But it also draws attention to the fact that there are all of these other um more commonplace everyday experiences that we've we've learned now can also lead to us feeling overwhelmed, threatened and out of control. So it, it draws attention to particularly that's things in relationships, in the parental relationship in particular, but everyday experiences, you know, slips and falls, routine medical procedures um, and, and, and really anything in childhood. You know, that's what we've learned is that, is that it's, it's very easy for a child to feel overwhelmed, threatened and out of control. So it's easy for them to kind of that fight, flight, freeze response to switch on. Yeah. And I think that's the key, isn't it? For so long, you and I both um, trained in psychology and for so long, trauma was considered to be those major kind of single events or the really, um, the, the huge catastrophic events. And which means that so many people write themselves out of that definition that, well, nothing like that ever happened to me. Therefore, I can't say that I've experienced trauma. But when you broaden that definition, like you said, to anything that might make you feel, or was it overwhelmed, 
powerless. Threatened and out of control. Threatened and out of control. Powerless or out of control, yeah. Then suddenly a whole lot of people can see themselves in that definition. We still do talk about sometimes, and I hear out there reference to big T Mm. and little T trauma or big T and other T trauma. Are you able to uh, help us understand what that distinction is for anybody listening? Yeah, big T traumas are the types of trauma that we've always traditionally considered when we say the word trauma. You know, they're the big, severe experiences. And of course, trauma is traumatic experiences, at least, do happen on a, on a spectrum, don't they? We, we would all agree that some events are more severe than others. You know, of, co- of course, that is just true. We understand that, you know, that, that that's the nature of it. So when we say big T trauma, we're talking about those kind of events that have traditionally pretty much always been acknowledged as leading to a traumatic uh, reaction. And that list grows. Um, it used to really primarily only be, you know, we would re- we recognised war, we recognised assault, rape, you know, that those 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 things. And slowly the list has got bigger. Um, and, and that's the list we're referring to. And then little T traumas, or in the book, I, as you said, I call them other T traumas, are everything else. Because, you know, I, I think you said you don't tend to work clinically anymore. But if you speak to any clinical psychologist, any therapist, any counsellor, they have known for a very, very long time that there's the big T trauma list, And there's all of this stuff over here that can also lead to a traumatic reaction. So really, the, the reason I don't use little t is because I think it's um, it's quite stigmatising. It makes us think that these things are somehow important and these things aren't. It's, it's quite dismissive almost. It was a little experience, which absolutely isn't true. It's not the case at all, as you would know if you've ever worked with anyone that's experienced, say, relational trauma. Um, you know, it, it has a, a huge and profound impact and is now recognised through the... Um, ICD-10, which is, you know, most recently put in CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, in recognition of of, of how uh, damaging relational trauma can be. Not typically on the big T trauma list, but most definitely a trauma. So I don't use the little T trauma. Instead, I say other T traumas because I think it draws attention to the fact that really it's anything else. And and uh, and, and the list is growing and key. it's not even a list. It's it, anything, any experience that can lead to that reaction is over here. Uh, and that's really one of the main messages in the book. And you actually, in the book, I noticed that you refer to, I think, 70 to 90 percent Mm. of people have experienced some kind of trauma. So it's basically all of us. It's basically all of us. Although interestingly, that stat is based on, this is the tricky thing in research, that statistic is is of course based on the big T trauma list. So that that's, a, that's just based on the ones that we have always traditionally understood. So when you begin looking over here, I think it's very, very, very safe and very obvious it, to say that all of us have in one way or another experienced a traumatic reaction. And that doesn't mean that everyone is still stuck in it. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. The traumatic reaction resolves at a different time and a different speed in all of us. Um, For some of us, we we might have experienced the traumatic reaction and it it have lasted a couple of weeks, uh, you know, six weeks, four weeks, whatever it might have been. Whereas others, of course, we're recognising are still stuck within that reaction 10, 20, 30 years later. You talk a lot about traumatic reactions, and I think this is key too. So it's not, it's not necessarily the experience, it's, it's your response to the experience. So the same event, therefore, can 
bring about a different response in different people. I think that's really critical too, isn't it? Yeah. Individual events or, or series of events will affect different people in different ways. So can you tell me when you refer to traumatic reactions, what sort of things are you talking about? Well, there's the initial reaction, um, but but when we scan forward the traumatic reaction, the way I, I I I tell people to look at it is there's a reaction in the mind, in the body, and in the behavior and in our behaviours. So you you're going to see the reaction popping up in all three, and and they're all linked. They kind of happen in a cycle. Um, but if you take the kind of the physical and emotional reaction, which is is where it starts, right? Because I use the words um, overwhelmed, threatened and out of control, but really what's happening underneath is that our fight, flight, freeze uh, survival response has been triggered. So it's a very physical reaction. Um, and, and of course, emotional along with that, but the, the physical and the emotional are, are essentially the same thing. So, uh, or, or essentially that fight, flight, freeze reaction. Um, and the things we'd be looking for there. So physically um, it's, you know, it can be anything sort of um, often feeling shame, often feeling kind of stuck in a feeling. Uh, that might be shame, that might be anger. Um, it's anxiety-like symptoms for an awful lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I say anxiety-like because it's not specifically anxiety, but it's anxiety-like sy- symptoms. Um, and we all know, you know, we, you know, of course, we've all experienced anxiety. We all know what that feels like. So if you're experiencing them daily, weekly, whatever it may be, then I would be saying, OK, perhaps there's something uh, going on within your nervous system um, and, th- and that you are potentially uh, dysregulated and, and, and almost stuck within that fight, flight, freeze response. And that's why you're kind of permanently anxious, essentially. Yeah. Um, there's um so a strong startle response is is a really big one that you often see that um i can relate to that absolutely um then there's all the the cognitive stuff as well so th- i think often this is missed but because it doesn't make too much sense to people but low self belief and low self esteem are a big 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 red flag and there are lots of kind of complicated reasons that develops over time um but it but if people are kind of like, well, how do I know if I've got trauma? I'd say, well, that's a a big one to look out for if you do have um, and, and have often struggled with self-belief and self-esteem, confidence, all those things. Um, they're often a sign uh, of trauma, particularly if they're coupled with the, with the other reactions. Um, uh, a really big one that you see in really, I would say, the majority of people. Um, so if you imagine when, when the fight flight freeze response goes off your body is flooded with hormones and that's what's making those anxiety-like symptoms and 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 the uncomfortable feelings and the feelings of fear and 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 anything else you might be feeling it's all hormone driven it's all uh, to do with those arousal hormones or the shutdown hormones if it's freeze it's it's not just your body that's flooded it's your mind as well so if you are continually or often experiencing very racing thoughts you know, obsessive worries, obsessive fears, you know, when your mind just spins and spins and spins, that's very often a sign that your your survival mechanism has been triggered. You're not feeling safe. Something in your environment has made you feel threatened or reminded you of a past threat. And all these hormones have kind of flooded your body. So it's important to understand that it's not just those anxiety-like symptoms in the body. We're going to experience them cognitively as well. Um, mm. And then there are the behaviours. 
Um, most people that have experienced trauma um, have some kind of avoidant behaviour because we respond to, to whichever symptom it is we're, we're, we're feeling. We push it away. That, that's the nature of trauma. We, we push the feeling away because it's overwhelming and it's a bit scary and we most certainly don't want trauma. So we push it away instead of doing what we need to do really, which is looking it in the eyes and, and, and taking some time to see it, you know, and sitting with our body and our mind and really seeing what's happening. So on the small end of the scale, it might be something like compulsive distraction, you know, constantly checking your phone because you're feeling these anxiety-like symptoms or what's going on in your mind, whatever it might be. Um, and, you don't like it, you want to move away from it. So you'll grab your phone, compulsive TV watching, compulsive spending. And then of course, at the top end of that kind of avoidance scale, you've got full on addictions and alcoholism and things like that. They're the symptoms that I tend to talk about because really here, what I'm trying to do is help people who don't necessarily have PTSD but who have the lower level symptoms. But of course, then if we look at the PTSD symptoms, you're going to also potentially be experiencing severe flashbacks and symptoms like that. Interesting that you talk about the avoidance and the wanting to push it away. I think you can't talk about trauma without also talking about shame. And nobody wants to talk about shame. You do refer to that link um, in your book as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that shame is this, like Brene Brown obviously has done all of the work around shame and vulnerability, and she says it's a universal experience, but it's still one that nobody wants to really acknowledge or look at. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that, about the trauma-shame kind of link? Yeah, very happily. It's so important um, because there is a huge link. You know, b- before shame, most often sits a traumatic experience. Mm. That 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 link has has been proven. It's in every single model of trauma, uh, or the vast majority of them. Shame shame is there because we we know that it's ubiquitous. If you've experienced trauma, the one of the mechanisms that will keep the symptoms going and keep you stuck in the reaction is shame. And what's that about? I mean, it can be very unique, you know, in terms of what we each feel shame about. But I think that the main thing that I feel people need to understand is that very often we feel shame about having had the emotions and having had the reaction. Does that make sense? So it's the shame is almost coming from the belief around it is I'm I'm weak. I shouldn't be feeling these things. So, so emotionally, we're already avoiding, we're pulling back. And not only that, but we're also feeling deeply ashamed that, that we weren't stronger. And, and that's why we need these conversations. We need to teach our kids. It's highly likely, highly likely, if not an absolute given, that you're going to experience a traumatic reaction. There is no shame in that. You know, if we, if we bring the conversation about trauma into the public space as we did with anxiety. I don't, I, I suffer anxiety sometimes. I, I have no shame around it because it's part of the public conversation now. We, we I meet another mum or a dad or whatever and we'll often say, oh, I'm feeling a bit anxious today. It's, it's, it's a lingo that we're all really comfortable with now. And I, my dearest hope is that, is that we get as comfortable with trauma. And I know it'll take a while because it's it's a complicated thing, but that in itself will help undo and pull back some of that shame response, you know. And there are other things going on too. Um, 
often the shame will come from not having our feelings validated and which is another reason we all need to you know get up to speed with this because if somebody experiences a traumatic reaction one of the worst things that we can do is invalidate it you know not accept it um essentially say come on it wasn't that bad don't worry about it get on with it if the reaction happened it needs to be witnessed it needs our loved ones our friends whoever it might be to say okay i see it i i get it you're you know it's not a conversation even about the event it's a conversation about the reaction it's an acknowledgement of the reaction and and without that we can end up feeling deep shame because our feelings weren't validated Yeah. And it's kind of at its core, I think, especially when we talk about childhood trauma and you mentioned before relational trauma, and I I would like to get to just some of those definitions, but uh, it's sort of got this core of unworthiness, doesn't it? Like if as a child you've experienced trauma or had your feelings invalidated, it's this internalized belief that I, there is something wrong with me or I'm somehow unlovable or unworthy. And without even that registering at a conscious level, it's kind of embedded somewhere deep in our psyche. Would you agree? 100%. And and that's part of the reason that we see, you know, I mentioned low self-belief as one of the cognitive reactions, one of the symptoms we would expect to to see. It links to, to, to that uh, shame-based self that we will develop along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about those attachment uh, relationships, you know, those very early experiences that sometimes we don't even remember, you know, Mm. we have these early experiences that we as infants and as young children that we don't often have a conscious memory of, but along the way we've internalised these ideas, as you said, like this unworthiness or this shame. And this is why I think it's so perplexing to people because a lot of people can't necessarily put their finger on a specific event or, or, you know, something concrete that they can track it back to. They, and this is why so many people feel like, well, this, it's obviously just me. There is something wrong with me. Absolutely. That's exactly the path. That's exactly right. There must be something wrong with me, you know, and that's why I called the book what I did you're not broken because the vast majority of people I speak with, and I'm sure as a a psychologist, you can attest the same, feel like they're fundamentally damaged. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken without realising it's the trauma talking. It's the trauma that has led you and pushed you and pushed you to adopt this identity. And and it's freeing realising that because once we know what the problem is, we can begin to treat it because it's very treatable once we know what it is. I hope that you're enjoying this conversation and realizing the benefits of positivity in your own life. If you are enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe so that you get notified when new apps drop and head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review. So getting back to that, you know, you've used the word relational trauma uh, a few times and I just mentioned about attachment. Just for people listening who are kind of going, what are you talking about? Can Are you able to just run through what some of those kinds of trauma are that we talk about in psychology or in the research or whatever? Yes. Um, I mean, essentially, the, the, the best thing is just to replace the word relational with relationship. You know, it's really any uh, traumatic event 
that happens within the relation relationship context. Um, and very often we're looking at the parental relationship. Um, I don't know, would you agree with that, that in your practice, would yes. you primarily see? 100%. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yes, exactly. So really we say relational, but I don't know why why we don't just say parental. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is the majority of them that I think we're, we're facing and, and that most people face. And they can show up in all kinds of ways. What, what have you seen in your practice? I'm really interested. Oh, well, I guess, you know, in, t- in terms of early attachment relationships, I think... Th- so many people come into therapy with their anxiety or their depression or their adult, you know, relationship struggles. And as psychologists, we go into what you, your personal history and tell us about your family growing up. And and often there was, uh, like you said, an invalidation of emotions or in my family, we just didn't talk about your feelings. Um, oftentimes there might've been, you know, alcohol or, um, you know, domestic violence or, you know, other issues like that. So even people who don't, again, don't put themselves in that category of like, I didn't, I wasn't abused as a child and I wasn't neglected and I had two parents at home, but you know, mum was never really available to me or my parents worked really long hours or, you know, it's, it's normal family stuff for most people. Yeah. It's normal family stuff. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate your clinical perspective because that is exactly right, isn't it? It's it's normal family stuff. But it creates emotional injuries in people. Yeah, absolutely. That last, that really leave scars. Oh, the lack of emotional connection, you know, Mm. the, the lack of feeling seen and heard, you know, to grow up without that, but but worse to, and I'm sure you've seen this, or I, f- I feel like you've just alluded to this, but worse to feel like you're lucky, to feel like my family's really normal. Like the narrative in my family is I'm lucky, we're normal, everything's great. Mum does drink every day, but she's a hoot, mm. you know, but, but still there's something in us that's growing because really instinctively a child knows something's not right, but worse, you know, Things aren't right in every family. In my family, of course, you know, I've got three children. There are moments of things not being right. But I know through my work that the worst thing I can do is dismiss. Mm. If I sit them down and say, you're absolutely right. Things aren't right. I hear you. You know, that that's the, that's the healing. That's the honesty. That allows them to develop a strong identity, to be able to recognise their feelings. So if you grow up in a, in a, in a home without that, where... Exactly as you've just said, you know, feelings are, are, are pushed away, dismissed, your experiences are dismissed. And worse than that, you're told you're lucky. It, I, I think confusing. Most people that I've spoken to who have relational trauma are confused. Why do I feel this way? Why is it so hard? Why do I find relationships so difficult? Why am I so insecure? You know, often you find that why am I so insecure in my in my relationships today with other mums or with other dads? Um, confusing, I think, is often the phrase I hear. And so relational trauma slash attachment trauma, I, I guess also when you talk about relation, relational trauma, there that would include bullying, uh, you know, if you're bullied at school, any, anything that, or having, your, having your best friend go behind your back and tell all your secrets, you know, all, all of those sort of betrayals. And, and then there's the big major event kind of trauma. I'm just trying to run through the kinds of trauma that people might be able to kind of connect with. So, um, the, uh, major event, disaster, uh, accident, injury, illness, that kind of trauma. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So they're on the they would be that kind of big T stuff that we mentioned. Yeah. And then the relational stuff would tend to be stuff tends to be stuff from childhood. I would say 80%, most often it's in the home, but as you've just alluded to, it can absolutely be outside of the home. Or what you'll find is it begins in the home, but then it's kind of um it, it begins the cascade and, and then it will happen outside of the home as well. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the trauma stacks on top of each other. So they're perhaps learning that traumatic reaction in the home. Mum and dad aren't available. They're not listening. Dad's drinking all the time, whatever it might be. Or dad's, you know, one of them's violent, whatever, however that might show up as. So that traumatic reaction is happening in the home. And then you'll often see that mirrored outside because really the first traumatic reaction sets us up for all the rest. That's a really important point that you make. You said, obviously, it starts in the home. I don't think that's obvious to a lot of people. It Trauma compounds. Mm, yeah. So you also talk about um, new tea and old tea mm. trauma. So do, do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people would relate to that too. Yeah, it's really important. I don't know why we don't talk about it more often because within the research community, it's very well known. I'm sure clinically it is as well. When somebody presents with an adult trauma, so something's happened in adulthood, as a, as a clinician, you, I'm sure you would agree, we, we, you, you treat the trauma. Of course, that is a traumatic experience and, and, it is, and it's, it's a new trauma. But most often there is a previous trauma because the biggest predictor of trauma today, so any of our listeners experiencing it today, the biggest predictor is previous trauma. Right. Okay. So I hope that everyone can hear that and that can land. So that's that sets the way. So so we know that if you experience a trauma in in adulthood, not for everyone, but for the vast majority of people, it lets us know that there was a previous traumatic reaction. So something happened before. Something might have happened before many times. It could have been this could have been your seventh traumatic reaction. But even if there was just one when you were age three, age four, age 14, whatever it was, the, the new reaction lets us know that most likely there was, an, there was one before because that's the one that paves the way. Right. And, and why, why is that? Well, how, or how, why is it that one trauma will likely predict a, another one? Well, because it's it's just set up the reaction in us. So right. and unless we've had treatment and unless we've we've resolved that reaction in a really meaningful way, or the body has fully and completely resolved it, we we're, we're more easily triggered. We're more easily so. So if you almost imagine that's probably the simplest way to to explain it, isn't it? Is that first reaction set off in us a, a, a uh, we were we were on high alert so from the moment that happened we've lived life for for many people potentially quite peacefully but we have been on on in some way looking out for threats in a way that we that uh, that we weren't before that first trauma happened so it's almost as if we're kind of scanning what might happen. But then also there's the issue of being triggered. So that the new adult trauma may well be a trigger for an old trauma. And by that, I mean, um, so so the new trauma actually might be a re-traumatisation. So something in our environment today, and I, I've personally experienced this, it was, you know, the word re-traumatised or, or traumatised, they are different, but essentially the same mechanism is happening. Mm. So... It's where something in our environment or a situation or 
a problem, an issue, whatever it might be, has reminded us of a past threat and then set off that old reaction. So either of those scenarios could could explain it. And I think also, just as you were talking then, I was thinking about how I did an episode, a a solo episode of the podcast last year and listeners may have heard it. Um, It was right at the beginning of COVID and I was talking about emotional resilience and I referred to the window of tolerance. And Mm, so you, obviously you'd be familiar with the window of tolerance, but I think that's a really important concept too. It's like our the, the level of stress we can effectively handle before we become dysregulated is lower, like our tolerance is lower, right? I think that's a really important thing for people to understand that because of your previous experiences, it may well be that the way your nervous system is wired, it may be that you have a slightly lower capacity, like a lower threshold for stress and therefore you're more likely to be triggered into a trauma reaction later because of that narrower window absolutely it's so important it is it's a and it's it's a it's a very hopeful thing to realize because we can widen that window we can tolerance. widen the window exactly my, my my healing has involved using that language and okay so how do we i mean mine was probably here i'm doing this with my hands you know it was it was yes. tiny anything and everything switched my flight fight freeze off i would hear a bird or a noise you know and it was i was immediately up there it was ev- everything just just brought me straight back in. It was oh so intense. Um, and over time, I widened my window of tolerance. And and it, it's a it's such a hopeful, wonderful way to work. And it, and you know if anyone's interested in it, it tends to be somatic uh, therapists, isn't it? Who who will work that way? Somatic psychotherapists or somatic experiencing who work with the body to teach you it's a very empowering way to work because they teach you how to do that you know and essentially it's really about um moving from always observing threat and uncomfortable feelings in your body to moving into a situation where we can uh, always or you know attempt to at least notice uh the the comfortable and the good not only in our environment so i i am safe i'm sitting on my bed i'm safe my my blanket blanket's really comfortable whatever it might be but also within our body you know so where where did your body feel comfortable today for a long time the only place i felt comfortable or or that didn't feel like it was rigid with anxiety was my butt cheeks so my somatic therapist had me live in my butt cheeks for a year she was like that's where we're going because that's where your body is comfortable be where it's comfortable. And then slowly you re- you feel the relaxation. You know, you realise, oh, isn't that, okay, no, my, I think my legs are, cut. my legs feel really comfortable. Okay, let's be in your legs. How does the sunshine feel on your skin? So it's changing that embodied experience and changing our relationship with our body. It's so important. Mm. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think so we, we as a species, we are so in our heads all of the time trying to intellectualize and analyze everything. And really the way forward with this is, as you say, um, getting into our body because that's where all of this is living. Like that's where all of this is, is happening. The other thing that you refer to in your book is intergenerational trauma. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. I don't know too much about the kind of current research. Um, but me neither. No, <laughs> um, but it's it's 
absolutely incredible. Um, essentially, what we have learned is that trauma can pass from one generation to the next. That's essentially the message. Um, and there are lots of different, or I would say we're not completely clear on all of the, um, the, 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 mechanisms, the mechanisms of how that's happening. We, we think there is a, a, a genetic element in as much as there's an epigenetic element. So um, how our environment is, is, is making our genes express themselves. Um, we think there's, you know, of course, socialised or, you know, so for example, say a, a parent with PTSD is parenting a child, of course, their PTSD is going to affect or their trauma is going to affect how they parent um that the the children are going to be picking up on on the parents feelings they're going to be picking up on the parents fears you know i i can relate to that one i'm sure a lot of people can we we most often will adopt the fears that our parents have and if you have an extremely fear based parenting system going on don't touch that don't do that you you're going to adopt a, a very similar similar way of being so so there's the genetic or epigenetic physical sort of uh, mechanism and then there's the socialized parenting mechanism we're not entirely sure completely what's going on but nobody disputes that it's that it's happening it's, it's being shown in in longitudinal studies that are not doubtable if you know what i mean yeah i just wanted to mention it because i think again there are people who who will say but i i don't relate to any of this i'm having these responses or these trauma responses or i'm behaving in a certain way or i've got these you know feel insecure or whatever it is like things that you've mentioned and it may it may be something that has has been passed down in some way i just feel like there's so many things that we can't see or name or necessarily clearly identify that could potentially be having an impact. Oh, it's so important to recognise. I would really, because you mentioned buried trauma before, but we didn't really talk about it, but um, we used to set the age of amnesia for a child at about three. So we thought kids couldn't remember anything before the age of three, but it's most recently been moved. We don't think many people can really remember before the age of seven. Mm. So just let that land. You know, so what we know is it's really easy for a child to experience a traumatic reaction. So we know that. We know it's easy for them to feel overwhelmed, threatened and out of control. We know that not many people remember before the age of seven. And we know relational trauma is really common. So let's all just do the maths. <laughs> you know, if people are sitting there going, well, I, you know, okay, so I do have low self-belief. I've got racing thoughts. I've got anxiety-like symptoms. I'm constantly checking my phone or I'm you know, avoiding my feelings all the time. I can't be still. I can't be present. I've got a strong startle response, but there is no, there's nothing back there. I had a great childhood. Come on, trust the symptoms. Mm. You know, the, the, my favorite phrase really into it at the moment is the body remembers. Mm. Okay. The body remembers the mind, the mind doesn't, the mind obfuscates, the mind makes excuses, the mind minimizes, the mind goes off on all kinds of tangents to lessen our pain because the truth is too painful. So we make up all kinds of excuses and narratives and all the rest of it, but the body remembers. So if you are experiencing these symptoms, trust your body yeah okay it's telling you there's something there that needs to be healed so yes whether that comes from buried trauma from childhood or intergenerational trauma trust the symptoms 
um, stop stop the, the natter and the conversations and the, well, it makes no sense and just listen to your body. Yeah. I just wanted to, to make um, one little side comment about that intergenerational thing, which I find fascinating. And that is, I don't remember where I read this, whether it was in your book, Sarah, or somewhere else, but there is a period of time when your grandmother was pregnant with your mother, knowing that females are born with all of the eggs they will ever produce in their body, like all of their eggs are in their uterus at the time of birth and that they develop while that baby is in the womb. So there is a moment in time when you were an egg, a little bit of DNA in your mother's wherever, where are they stored? Uterus. Um, (laughs) While she was a baby in your grandmother's womb. Does that make sense? Is that very confusing? No, it makes total sense. It's an incredible image, isn't it? Right. When your grandmother Mm. was pregnant with your mother and you were an egg in your mother's infant womb. So there was a point in time where all three of you occupied the same physical body. And so mind blowing. Isn't it? Mm. And when you think about the DNA, how trauma affects the expression of of your genes. So we know that, um, you know, your environment, situations that happen in your environment can affect how your um, genes are expressed, how your DNA is expressed. And so if your grandmother experienced, for example, trauma or, you know, uh, famine or poverty or went through the the war or something like that, there was a point in time when her DNA was directly impacting yours. Yes, absolutely. Just a little side note that I just personally find really interesting when it comes to all of these unexplained kind of symptoms or experiences that we have. I think it's worth just keeping in mind that there is so much that is in us, like bred into us that we don't necessarily ever fully consider. We think that we start off, there's an egg and a sperm and you get made and it's a blank slate, but that is not the case. We are all kind of imprinted with this stuff. Absolutely. And more than that, I would say when you when you work with real top-notch trauma therapists, uh, very, very many of them, uh, I would say increasingly so in the last 10 years we'll ask what your birth was like yes you know they want to know it's it's, and it's not hocus pocus what was your mother's pregnancy like with you was do you know was she stressed was she looking after a ton of kids um how was she (laughs) Uh, was she on any medication was there any alcohol abuse you know they want to know what was going on when you were in in the womb (laughs) and they really really want to know what was going on during your birth Mm. because we know now Absolutely. Yeah. In the womb and the birthing event. Of course, if you think about what I've just explained about the fight, flight, freeze, how common it is in children, it's, you know, it's an animal instinct. Could there have been a traumatic imprint, a traumatic memory from from then? So yeah. it's mind blowing and true. It's both of those things. And Sarah, so now that everybody listening has realised that they probably are having a trauma response, whether they've realised it or not in the past, they know now. And some people would listen to this episode and they, many people would realise they, they're very clear on what they've experienced in their early life or you know even in their adult life. And there are others who perhaps haven't. But as you said, the good news is that once we know, then there is so much room for resolving these issues and for healing these issues. And we always like to um, 
finish on a high note on this on this show. So where do people, what are some of the, the treatments? I know that you're not a clinician. I don't do clinical therapy anymore myself, but what are some of the treatments that are working and where should people start with exploring some of these options? Uh, first, I would say there's an enormous amount you can do at home. You don't, you don't have to, if you want to go for it. I absolutely love therapy. I've worked with so many therapists over the year, years, I still do. Um, but you don't necessarily have to do that if you have a resistance to it uh, or you're afraid or it feels too much, begin where it feels comfortable. So if that means uh, trying to feel your feelings at, more at home, you know, so so a simple thing is, is pausing, uh, acknowledging and allowing your feelings. So, so trying to be with your anxiety so, so, oh, I feel really anxious today, dropping into your chest and being with the physical sensations, tracking the sensations. And, and that's, a, that's a common um, uh, technique used by somatic psychotherapists. You know, that's really what they're going to be trying to do is getting you to embody and be with the feelings and then, and then releasing them in different ways. But you, you can work on that at home, of course, of feeling your feelings and being in, in your body and with your body. Trauma healing is all about moving and shifting so you can begin to adopt you know you can start yoga yeah you know that there are these very loving gentle ways of, of reconnecting with and moving our bodies that will that will help things begin to move because really trauma tamps things down we're stuck we're locked in a reaction what we want to do is get everything moving again you know so they're two relatively simple things you can begin to do at home um but I would always recommend that people work work with other people. Support is key, uh, especially if we've got trauma and, we, and we've come from a home where we haven't been validated, we haven't necessarily had the emotional support we needed. Give it to yourself now as an adult. Um, I, I would I would say, you know, find a good trauma therapist. There are many, many great ones. The trauma treatments now are incredible. You know, whether you go down, so I mentioned the somatic line, so find a somatic experiencing practitioner or a somatic psychotherapist. Um, or if you don't, if you're not comfortable working with the body, which for a long time I wasn't, it wasn't the place I could start. It was too overwhelming for me. Um, then then just talk therapy, you know, find 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 a psychologist, find a therapist, but, but please make sure that they are very, very fluent in trauma. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's really very important. And I would always argue, also argue that I, I tend to encourage people to find people, uh, therapists who are um, very fluent in trauma and very fluent in addiction. And I think that frightens people when I, when I say that, but it, it's not, addiction is a, is a very curious thing. And, and it's not that I'm saying that everyone who has trauma has an addiction, but what we do know, if you think back to what I said, is that trauma points us towards avoidance. So we will avoid our feelings and the people who understand avoidance, the therapists who understand avoidance and really get it and will really help you pinpoint it and get really, really honest about it are people who are trained in addiction. Mm. So that's also something to look for. So people that are trained in trauma and trained in addiction, if you can find someone with those two, that to me is the most powerful match, trauma and addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just wanted to add too that I just think self-compassion is so important. And um, because as you say, or as we discussed earlier, there is so much 
shame and self-judgment and what's wrong with me that goes along with some of these trauma reactions, that that capacity to offer yourself some kindness is just so, so critical and for addiction as well and for all of the other things that we've talked about. We're we're not good at self-compassion. We're not good at self-kindness. We are not good at that. That is the journey. Mm. Honestly, that is the healing journey. And I think it's the thing I resisted the most. You know, I was so hard on myself. Mm. And, and I think many people can relate to that. But yes, it's something you can begin to do at home today is playing with that idea. What does that feel like? If I talk to myself kindly, what do I say? You know, think about a loving parent. What would a loving parent say? Really, that's what, what we're trying to do that, you know, they, they would stop and, and, and give us a moment if we were overwhelmed, wouldn't, mm. wouldn't they? That's what a loving parent would do. They wouldn't make us crash on with the day. They'd say, sit down. What do you need? Mm. What do you need? How are you? You know, so it's, it's really thinking about what that might look like for you, that really compassionate parental inner voice and beginning to, to play with it and see how it feels. But thank you for bringing that up because there's something people can do at home along with that kind of feeling our feelings and getting moving. I would say that those three are really, really key, really critical. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so valuable. Um, The book is called You're Not Broken, Break Free from Trauma and Reclaim Your Life. I'll put links to where people can buy that um, in the show notes. As I think we've well established, this is a topic that everybody it it affects everybody if not you personally then then everybody around you so which is why i think that we all really need to get across this so i'm so grateful for your contribution oh it's been great thank you so much been really really lovely to chat to another psychologist It's, it's been really lovely Sarah's book is called You're Not Broken and it's available right now in all good bookstores. You can find out more about Sarah and her work at her website, sarahwoodhouse.com or follow her on Instagram and Facebook at the Sarah Woodhouse. As always, please come and connect with me on Instagram at castdun underscore XO or Facebook at castdun.xo. Check out my website, castdun.com and I will catch you on the next episode of Crappy to Happy. Crappy to Happy is presented by Cass Dunn. Produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.